The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. So we're looking at idolatry, the ever-present allure of idolatry from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 to 31. May God bless his word as we hear it. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you, And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat, nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. We saw in chapter 4, the first half of chapter 4, last week, that Moses had urged the people of Israel to cling to the Lord their God and to cling to his word, to cling to the law of God. And it's not surprising, immediately after that exhortation in the first half of chapter 4, that Moses turns to the subject of idolatry. And he uses a very powerful word, therefore, watch yourselves. Literally, watch your souls. Because of the danger and allure of idolatry. One reason for this danger is given to us in the second part of verse 15. He says a very interesting thing. He says, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. He's referring to the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And he's saying that there was this great fire on the mountaintop And the Lord spoke from the fire. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy, the Lord speaking from the fire, even in chapter 4, is mentioned a number of times. Possibly, what we see here is referred to later in chapter 4, which we read about this idea that idols neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. They have a form. They're carved or uh, in some way formed but they can't speak, they can't smell, they can't hear. The Lord, we're told, did not appear in any kind of form on Mount Sinai. He spoke from the fire. There was no form, but the Lord God is a living God. He spoke from the fire. So, here we find that it is a very dangerous thing to fall into idolatry. And the fact that Moses mentioned the giving of the law here being authenticated in this miraculous way, it was an astounding thing. The Israelites were were filled with fear. Moses himself said he trembled with fear. This awesome God in this miraculous way in the giving of the law authenticated this divine revelation of his word on the mountain. And so it helps us to remember that the Bible is of divine origin and it helps us, helps us and keeps us from idolatry. We want to consider this evening idolatry described and then the cure for idolatry. And most of our subject is going to be about the cure, but let's first look at verses 16 to 19 and look at idolatry described. Beware, verse 16, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. And then he talks about the various kinds of forms. And these clearly hearken back to Genesis, but in the opposite order of the Genesis account for the most part. And then in verse 19, And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven. So not only the animal world and the birds and so forth, but also the starry host, the sun and the moon and the stars, that you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. I had someone in our church say to me this morning when he saw what the text for the sermon was tonight, he said, John, what that brings to mind is years ago when I was in Israel 
And I don't know if the moon appears bigger there or not. He said, I think maybe scientifically there is something about it being near the equator or something like that. But I, I was in my room and I looked out on the horizon and there was the moon rising, the full moon. And you could just see it like a great ball in the sky. And he said, Deuteronomy 4 came to my mind. And I thought, how many people think of Deuteronomy 4 when they see the moon rise? <laughs> he said, it came to my mind, the lore of idolatry. I thought, wow, that's great. He said, you can tell him I said that. I won't mention his name. But it's interesting, at the end of that verse, Scripture says that the Lord your God has allotted these things to all the peoples under the whole heaven. It's almost as if, and there's dispute as to what is meant by that verse. It's almost like Scripture is saying God has providentially given the sun and the moon and the stars to all of mankind for Various reasons, of course, we know they mark the day and the night, and navigation-wise, it's a, it's a guide to us. But the problem of idolatry is taking a good gift of God, even these great celestial orbs, and making them idols. I referred to the fact that the order in which the creation is spoken about here seems to say that Idolatry perverts and turns upside down the whole created order. And it's a very similar order as we find in Romans chapter 1 where Paul there writes about humankind's descent into idolatry, worshiping and serving the created things instead of the creator who is forever blessed. Scripture is saying it is a folly. Beware Think carefully, watch your souls, not to be enticed or drawn away to worship these things. I was reminded of the Apostle Paul coming to Athens. And the scripture says that his spirit, in Acts 17, it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the idols. It's interesting because maybe some of you have been on tour groups to Greece or other parts of the ancient world and see ancient temples and so forth and and marveled at the great artistry, very beautiful human art, we might say. And yet, Paul felt a great revulsion. Why was that? Because obviously he was seeing it in its true nature as idolatry, as things that were being offered up in the place of the true God and people ensnared by these powerful idolatries, whatever they were, no matter how beautiful they were in terms of human works of art, it was idolatry, and it provoked Paul's spirit within him. We must keep this biblical revulsion in mind as we think about idolatry, because the world around us will interpret life for us without regard to the true God. The world around us is always interpreting the world and telling us how to think about our lives. And conveniently, that is always without regard to the living and the true God and living before him, trusting him, loving him, worshiping him alone. Of course, when we hear these descriptions of idols in terms of man-made forms of animals or birds or the sun and the moon, The tendency is for modern Westerners to think, well, that doesn't concern me. That's old, ancient stuff. But we know, and if you heard the sermon on 1 Corinthians 10, 
you know that that's not the case at all, that idols are anything, even good things that may be given to us by God himself as part of his many gifts he gives us, that functionally begin to take the place of God in our lives. And so we saw in that sermon a time, some time ago that we need to be constantly vigilant for what is becoming idolatrous in our lives. We talked about things like financial security or a good reputation or a fine education or material wealth or pleasures or comfort or peace and quiet, the desire to look attractive or to have others like us and approve of us or to give us love or to have others serve us or it might have to do with the power of being able to control others or having recognition. It may be the abuse of the material things in this world as escapes to flee from this life in terms of alcohol or drug abuse and things like that. And so we could think about the idea that we know that There is an idolatrous desire in our heart going on in some way when we see bad fruit in how we fail to love others around us. And we might look at it as just a momentary lapse and we said something that shouldn't be said, but really something that we desired had become a demand or we could even say had in some way become a functional idol for us. Just take the example of wanting peace and quiet And you may walk into your house and your family is there and there's a lot of confusion and things weren't the way you thought they should be and you erupt in anger. And you might think, well, it's just a momentary lapse. It doesn't have anything to do with my walk with the Lord, but it does. It shows that you were giving into the idolatry of demanding peace and quiet in your life when the Lord doesn't assure you of that. Yes, it's a good thing and it's a good gift from the Lord. And so we see that idols are very much a part of the Christian's warfare against sin. And not only here in Deuteronomy 4, but the Bible is full of that. We must ask ourselves, what are the kinds of things that attract us in terms of the idols that we face in our lives? And how are we deceived by the idolatry that is still there to some degree in our lives? The Christian is someone who has bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ and given her life or his life to the Lord And yet, we know that the rest of our Christian life on this earth, we will be fighting against the temptation to put other things before our true God and living God. So that's a brief description of idolatry, and we could go into that in much more depth. But we want to look at the cure, and we want to see this in a number of sub-points. The first one of these sub-points in the cure is remember your redemption. After this description of the danger of idolatry, we find in verse 20 this description of the Israelites' great redemption by the Lord. Listen again to this verse. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Remembering your redemption in Jesus Christ is a great and vital help to remaining faithful to the Lord and not being as easily deceived by the idols that would be an allure to you in your life. In other words, we need something 
more powerful than the draw and the allure of an idol. And what is more powerful? The only thing that is more powerful is the Lord himself as our God. Here there's this reference, this wonderful reference to the iron furnace. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace. Probably this recalls the suffering of the Israelites working in the burning heat of the day. It was like an iron furnace. When Patty and I got married, we moved to Fort Worth, and I taught school for two years while she finished up college at TCU. And in the summer between the two years I taught, I helped build fences. I worked for a friend who was a part of our Bible study group, and he had a fence company. Little did I know, being from Pennsylvania, that not only was it just as humid in Fort Worth, if not more so than here, but it was about 10 degrees hotter on the hottest summer days. So there I was out there building fences, digging fence post holes, sometimes doing it by hand and building fences, and it would be 105, 107, you know, 108 with humidity. I think that is the closest I've gotten to the iron furnace being referred to here. I'm sure Egypt is a lot worse than that. But here are the Israelites They had experienced God's redemption. He had brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, we're told. And we know that from the wilderness description, how quickly they forgot their redemption. How quickly they were grumbling. Numbers 11, 18, very soon after that, after their redemption, they were saying, it was better for us in Egypt. You just have to think, What about the iron furnace? They were reinterpreting their lives. They were saying the Lord really wasn't very good to them. So what we're hearing here and what Moses is reminding the people before they enter the land, remember this is in a sense Moses' series of sermons before the Israelites finally enter the promised land. Forty years have gone by. That first generation has died. That next generation is about to enter the the land. And he's saying, it is good to remember this great work of redemption as a guard, as a protection against the lure of idolatry. And how much more so for Christians to remember their great redemption through Jesus Christ. Not just a physical redemption, but really the fulfillment of the Exodus redemption in an even greater way by a greater Moses. And so in Ephesians 2.12, Paul says, Remember that at that time, before you know Christ, you were excluded from from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's how dark their lives were before Christ. But he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. What a redemption the Christian has in Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 4.20, the the way it's described here is that they've been brought out of Egypt, out of this iron furnace, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day, this wonderful biblical idea that the people of God are God's chosen possession. They are God's treasured possession, Exodus 19.5. 
And in the New Testament, it goes beyond that. We are sons of God. We are children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown us that we should be called the sons of God. And that is what we are, 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. As we meditate on and remember our new status in Christ, that we are sons of God, that we are children of God, that we are God's treasured possession, that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, we're told, then... The the temptation to idolatry fades from our lives. It's never completely gone. But do you see how this is a constant battle in the Christian life? That the fact of our redemption, the glory of our redemption in Jesus Christ, not grow dim. Not like the Israelites who had forgotten what Egypt was really like. It's not that they couldn't recount the stories. It's not that they didn't know it cognitively. It's that they didn't glory in it. They didn't relish it. They didn't delight in it. Whenever the temptation comes to find our security in the idols of our world or to overcome our fears with the idols of this world or to seek out the illicit pleasures of sin in accordance with the idols of this world, When that happens, largely the Christian has forgot his redemption. He's got amnesia. She's forgotten who she is in Jesus Christ. When something like worldly prestige or success or wealth or the acceptance of others bumps aside Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have lost sight of our redemption We're told that when John Newton was dying, those around him say that he said he was packed and sealed and waiting for the post. I love that phrase, first of all. He's waiting for the post, packed and sealed and waiting for the post. And then at one point, he finally spoke his last words, and he said these words. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. And he could barely get out these words, of course, that I am a great sinner And then it said that he had to pause for a little while to get breath. And that Christ is a great Savior. Newton's final words. He was remembering his redemption, even at the end of his life. The cure of meditating on the gospel of grace should never get old for the Christian. As you remember your redemption and remember the gospel and stand in it, not as something old and stale, but something new and fresh every day, the temptation to idols will more and more lose their power in your life. Never completely in this life, but they will lose their hold on you. Secondly, in terms of the cure, verses 21 and 22, remember the seriousness of sin. Here we have... Moses now, in these verses, talking about the Lord's discipline of Moses himself, of himself. Verse 21, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Remember the seriousness of sin. It's interesting that Moses would bring this up here. Is he just 
carping and complaining in the middle of things and talking about he wishes God would let him go into the land. No, this is part of what he's saying about how to battle idolatry, I believe. And Moses is using his own sin and God's discipline of him in his life as a basis of exhortation for the people. We saw at the end of chapter 3 a few weeks ago that Moses there told about praying for the Lord to let him enter the land, and the Lord decisively said, no, you will not enter the land. He allowed him to view the land from Mount Pisgah from afar, but that was all. And he even instructed him to encourage Joshua, who would have to lead the people on the next leg of the trip. Moses, you're not allowed to go. Was that because God was just a spoil sport and didn't want Moses to do that, or God was kind of holding a grudge? No. I believe it had to do with God revealing something of the seriousness of sin. Remember, all that first generation, God said that they would die in the wilderness, and they did. They weren't allowed to enter the land except for two of the spies. Um, And here we have Moses talking about how the Lord dealt with him. Moses, in his maturity, this is Moses at 120 years old. He's been leading the Israelites in a very difficult wilderness way for 40 years. This is shortly before his death. And I believe we see Moses, as we're told, was the meekest of men, a very humble man. And he focuses on the Lord's discipline to show, I think, how seriously God sees sin and treats sin. It's not that Moses wasn't redeemed and wasn't forgiven, no. God is going to let him see the land Moses is a saved man, but Moses wasn't so proud so as not to use himself as an example of sin and the seriousness of sin. And just because we are redeemed by Jesus Christ and cleansed of all of our sins in Christ and justified by grace once for all, we're not saved and lost and saved and lost, just because of all that doesn't mean that it means nothing to disobey. Disobedience is serious, and especially a disobedience that is a part of idolatry in our lives. Moses' sin, we think about his sin, and we're not sure exactly uh, what made it so bad, or was it, it didn't seem to be idolatrous at all. Moses was guilty of an outburst at anger. Remember, the people were grumbling, and he mentions because of you a number of times, the people because of you. Um, he's not seeking just to foist it upon them and blame them in every way, but he's describing his irritation with a disobedient and grumbling people that were burdening him. And this was probably near, pretty much near the end of the wilderness wandering time, and he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Many believe that the sin especially was bad. Not only was he angry at the people, but he was, in a sense, putting himself in the place of God in some way. Here, he fell in the area of his greatest strength. The most humble man fell because he was guilty somehow of pride and putting himself too highly in this case. And Moses is not just complaining in verses 21 and 22. He is showing, him, showing the seriousness of sin with himself as the example. We should stop and think about that. The painful consequences of idolatry and sin. Individually, it affects our own walk with God. 
And certainly, corporately, it affects the body of Christ. Our sin affects those around us whom we love the most, we're closest to, often bringing public shame or loss in some sense. And yes, we know that God will use even these painful consequences for his glory ultimately and our good, but that should never be a reason to sin. Just like we should never sin because we know God will forgive us eventually. But our culture will never give us that message. I've been teaching a Sunday school class on the book of Judges, and we finally come to the two-part conclusion this morning. And the first part, the first conclusion is Judges 17 and 18. And it's all about idolatry. And the author of the book talks about Micah, this man, this isn't the prophet Micah, but this Israelite who built a household shrine, he stole from his mother, and then he appoints his own son, the priest, and and the story just goes on and on. Then this other tribe comes, and they steal his gods, and they end up forming their own shrine, and they take the Levite who's supposed to be there, and it's just chaotic. We were talking in the class that if you had no idea what the Bible said and you read this, you would just think, What does this mean? And part of the purpose we saw is that the author is saying there was no king. Everyone did as he saw fit in his own eyes. Pointing ahead to our need need for King Jesus to rule our lives. And the idolatry of that first conclusion leads into the idolatry of Judges' second conclusion, which is a whole society gone crazy in sin. The tribes are at war among themselves. There's sexual perversion. There's all kinds of crazy things going on. Because of the root cause of idolatry, the whole nation is falling apart. Idolatry leads to all manner of other sins and other consequences. And so we ought to see from this text, the seriousness of idolatry, the seriousness of sin. And that should be a guard in our own hearts. Thirdly, part of the cure, remember the jealousy of God. Here we look at verses 23 and 24. Take care. Again, this word is repeated a number of times. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Here's this reference to God being a consuming fire, a jealous God. But note, first of all, that verse 23 begins by reminding them of the covenant with their God. Usually we think of jealousy in relationship to marriage, which is a covenant. We had our daughter's wedding here just a few weeks ago, and I was privileged to say the vow, have the vows before them, and I gave Jonathan his vows first, and he said them just like a soldier. He's not a soldier, but he said them that way with real conviction. And then I turned to our daughter and started the vows. She said the first phrase or two, and then she just welled up with emotion. We had to wait, and then we did the next vow, and she welled up with emotion again, just the solemnity of it all, that she was making covenantal vows, it just overwhelmed her. And that's not unusual for young people to have that experience. You make these serious covenantal vows before God. The Israelites were God's covenant people. Christians are God's new covenant people in Christ. 
And so it's not surprising that God would speak of himself as a jealous God, a consuming fire. Think of those two descriptions of God, very powerful, very central to Deuteronomy as a book and to the whole Old Testament. God is a consuming fire. No doubt the word fire and that idea of fire is an allusion to the same fact that's repeated in Deuteronomy a number of times, that God um, appeared as fire on the mountain. He spoke from the fire, speaking of God's holiness his righteous justice and wrath, we would say, his judgment to any who would turn away from him to idolatry. And it's interesting that that idea of consuming fire is not just an Old Testament term. It's repeated in the New Testament in Hebrews 12, where the author is warning the readers about apostasy. And he describes Mount Sinai in 12:18 he talks about this blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them and he says further on indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said i tremble with fear and then he says christians that's not the mountain you come to You come to Mount Zion, and he describes Mount Zion, this wonderful mountain of the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and so on. But interestingly enough, he says, if no one escaped from God's justice in that day on Mount Sinai, how much more serious is it for us who have the new covenant if we reject him who warns from heaven? And then he concludes, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And here's the phrase, for our God is a consuming fire. That's a New Testament quote as well. The idea that this is a warning against apostasy, turning away from the living God to anything else that you would put in God's place. So God is a consuming fire kind of follows on the idea of the seriousness of sin. But also, we're told here, a jealous God. It's paired with this idea of a jealous God, God's passion for his glory and his name. Jealousy really can be a sinful thing, can be a wrong thing in a human way. But I tell couples getting married, I say, is either of you particularly jealous? And we talk about that some. And I say, is that good or bad? And really, in many ways, jealousy is a good thing if it's submitted to the Lord, because it's a red flag that says, I think that there's someone else seeking to come in between our covenant and our marriage vows. Jealousy. The jealousy of God is a zeal that demands the exclusive devotion of God's people to himself. God, we're told, is jealous for his people, jealous that they remain faithful to him, his exclusive people, just as we would expect in the marriage covenant. And so he's against, he's jealous against idols. It's a holy zeal. God is claiming his people's allegiance when it's, in a sense, threatened by anything else, any other gods, small g. And God's jealousy is an aspect of God's love. He tolerates no rivals. For us. And in fact, 
If you were with us when he preached on 1 Corinthians 10, our final verse was verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And Paul has just told them, flee idolatry. What a wonderful thing to think that there is this sense in which every Christian can say, my Lord God is jealous over me. I am married to my God. I am in covenant relationship with him. And he loves me with this kind of love that doesn't just yawn if I seek after other lovers. No, he is a jealous God who wants my full allegiance and my complete love. Well, our fourth cure is really what I've called the way back from idolatry. The ever-present allure of idolatry has an ever-present way back to God. I'm not going to read all of verses 25 to, to 31 again, but here we see this description of, God, of Moses is imagining the people in the land for a long time, and now their children are grown, and their grandchildren are there, and they're in this good land. And what if they turn to idols? He's saying if they act corruptly, verse 25, we saw that in verse 15. If they act corruptly by making this kind of a carved image, if they go to idolatry, this is the kinds of thing that they're going to see. And it was fulfilled historically. He says that they will be breaking the covenant, essentially, with their God. In fact, at the end of verse 26, there's this, uh, at the beginning of it, it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. It's like God is calling to testify in court about this covenant, and he calls heaven and earth to bear witness if the nation does this. And they did that. And then we see the discipline of God come to bear in verses 26 and 27, that they would utterly perish from the land, that they'd be taken into captivity, that they'd be scattered among the nations, uh, and that the Lord would drive them there. And actually we see in verse 28 that God would give them the very thing that they wanted. Verse 28, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. He will give them over to idolatry, the very thing that Romans 1 talks about. God gave them over. God gave them over. It's like a great bell tolling in Romans 1. Three, three times we hear God gives them over. He gives sinful human beings over to their sins and their idolatry. And it's really portraying the misery of sin the misery of idolatry, the misery of life lived apart from fellowship with God. But there is a way back. And that is heartening for all of us in the ways that we might turn back to other things. Verses 29 and 30 describe it. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. I'm not an expert on John Newton's life. I've read a couple of biographies and I'm not sure. It's been some time since I've read them. But 
The story goes that Newton was in this great storm at sea, and the ship was almost certain to go down, and he cried out to the Lord. He had heard the gospel. He had been raised at his mother's knee, hearing the gospel till she died at age five. And his father was at sea a lot, and he took up the same kind of lifestyle and strayed far from what he had been taught by his mother. But there in that storm, Newton called out to the Lord, and many scholars believe that that's what he's referring to, the day I first believed in that storm. But it's not a a straight upline graph of his life. It's not like he left the slave trade immediately. No, he stayed in it. His life slipped back into these things to some degree. And it took some time before he finally renounced the slave trade and his life turned more drastically around and he began to walk with the Lord in a more complete way. I don't know how we interpret that, whether he knew Christ fully and truly was converted in that initial time in the storm or not. But what we do see is that Newton's an example of, if that was a backsliding time, there needed to be a whole-hearted, whole-person turning back to the Lord. And certainly many Christians experience this, serious backsliding and then returning to the Lord. And during that time, maybe your assurance does go down. But here in our text, we see that there's a full and honest turning to the Lord, which means a turning away from sin, that mourning over your sin that Jesus talks about. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. No longer calling sin something else. No longer being deceived by it, but calling it what it is. No longer blaming it on somebody else or those around you or the circumstances, but a very God-centered repentance and faith that they would seek the Lord with their whole heart and with all their soul and that there would be a renewed walking in the path of obedience. You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, a turning, a repentance that shows up in the fruit of someone's daily life. Ask yourself this, does the Bible somehow encourage sin by telling us that this is the way back? No, it doesn't encourage sin. It doesn't encourage idolatry to tell us of this way back, to tell us of God's mercy. It's somewhat like we read in Romans 6, where the Apostle Paul is dealing with the subject of grace. And there are some who said that if you preach grace, you're going to let people just sin all they want. And Paul's answer is, Shall we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin in Christ live any longer in it? In other words, full and free gospel of grace is never an excuse to pursue a way of sin. There will be painful consequences to sin. There will also be the danger that you may show yourself to be an apostate And you will never come back. You will just keep going the wrong way and you will prove that you were not really converted in the first place. But the great value of this promise held out here in Deuteronomy 4 is that it's only the mercy of God that keeps a person from utter despair. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. That is the gospel of grace. It focuses attention on God's great mercy And we always need to be turning away from ourself. And even when we look at our sin, to be looking at it in light of our great God. The glory of the way back 
is the great gospel of God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ. And that must always be our strength and our hope. Every Christian will always be fighting, to some degree, the temptation to idolatry. That's never completely gone in this life. But let us not be deceived by the idols of this world. Let us not be ensnared by them. Let us not take the bait that's on the hook of idolatry, but let us wholeheartedly trust in our loving, in our gracious, and in our jealous God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for your truth, which sustains us and encourages us. We need it fresh in our minds every day, in our hearts. Thank you that you are faithful to us, that we are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We thank you that ultimately you are the keeping God, that you preserve us by enabling us to persevere. And so with our idols that so easily crowd into our hearts and lives, help us to see through them and help us to trust in you. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.